Well, it's good to be back here with you this morning. Uh, as many of you know, I was able to uh, take some time away with the family. Uh, the family has a place up north in Vermont. We were able to just spend some time there, and it was a real blessing. Um, and Pastor Sam is just, uh, we had a round of applause for him in the first service. We'll do it again, even though he's downstairs. What a great job. I love his illustrations and his energy, and it's just such a blessing. And, and I was able, even though I was on vacation, we had gotten back late Saturday night, and so I was able to come to church, because I don't get to come to church, right? And I was able to come here and hear him preach, and what a blessing, and so that's awesome. And we were able to uh, spend some time outside and, uh, and doing a lot of hiking and a lot of uh, walking and swimming. And, and I did the best I could, and, and everybody was kind of like, you okay? Everybody kept looking back, you okay? And I was like, if you were doing this with a 75-pound backpack on, that's kind of like what it is for me. So, But I got through it, and then, uh, and then last night I went for a little walk around my block, and that seemed easy because I was used to like climbing up the rocks and all that. But it was nice, and it was good to be back. And, you know, some people had said, hey, I thought you were on vacation when we showed up last Sunday, but... I want, I want to be here, you know what I'm saying? I was on vacation time away, but I want to be here with my family, and so it's good to be back, because this isn't a job, right? right. Ministry is a calling. And to be and make disciples of Jesus is not just my calling. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. If you're a Christian, you are in ministry. You are not just the recipient of reconciliation, of God's grace and mercy, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, you're given the ministry of reconciliation. So we don't just say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me and reconciling me to you. And then we just go about our business. We encourage others with the hope that we have. We are all missionaries. We are citizens of another place that are just passing through. This isn't our home. But we all, every one of us has work to do. We are called, every one of us, to be about our Father's business, despite what's happening around us, despite what's happening within us or to us, we are called to be light. We are called to express the love of Jesus. We are called like Paul did and like he encouraged Timothy to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, and to run the race. And people say, well, living as a Christian in this world, it seems to only be getting harder and harder. And well, yes and no. Yes, I understand that maybe in the last 50 years, maybe in this generation, that in America, that because there was sort of a cultural or Judeo-Christian framework, that people, everybody sort of identified as normally Christian, that in some sense, maybe it feels like culture is against us. But for all people, at all times and all places, it is never easy to stand for God. And it never will be easy to stand for God. And so places where there are typically people who are nominally Christian, it means Christian in name only, not necessarily a follower of Jesus, but you identify like I have blue eyes, I vote this way, and I, you know, where places, people who are nominally Christian, Christian, they're spiritually dead oftentimes. And so when it means something to stand for Jesus, and it always does, and it always put you in opposition to the world system, he continues to build his church. He continues to do what only he can do. So in this sense, we are an outsider. And we will always be an outsider if we stand for God. That's the spiritual reality. And so I want to talk about building his kingdom while everybody else is fighting to build their own. 
I want to talk about living for Christ, being dying to self. About giving our lives to something so much greater than ourselves. I want to talk about kingdom building. Despite obstacles and opposition. And I want to talk about the power of Christ to overcome all those things. No matter what you're facing, no matter what I'm facing. I want to talk about radically loving people that may hate you. And building his church no matter what the cost. About him building through us. See, if you and I don't participate, God's still going to build his church. God's still going to preserve his people. The question is, do we want to take part in that? Because the kingdom of heaven is here in part, but not in full. We're called to live as the redeemed and reconciled. The church is not a place. It is the people of God. And Jesus dwells with us and within us. And so, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is around us. And it's inside of us. It is here in part. Romans 14, 17, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In that sense, it is a way of being. It is an awareness. It's not just about the activity, but it's about the heart in the midst of the activity. It's about an acknowledgement that he's in control that he is sovereign and good and can be trusted. And though we are surprised often by what we see around us, he is not. And we ought to take comfort in that. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In other words, when we look around us and everything's falling apart, let us recognize that he's still building his church. And our response is awe and adoration and praise because no matter what's going on in your life and my life, God is good and he's still good and he's in control and he's on the throne. And it's always so funny to me because people are like, yeah, God created the whole universe. God sustains the whole universe. God raised his son Jesus from the dead. But my situation, I don't know. I don't know if he can do anything there. I mean, that's kind of a tough one. No, it's not. No, there's nothing you're going through. There's nothing you will go through that the power of Jesus Christ cannot overcome and set you free from. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming that in ways that can be observed. No, they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom is in the midst of you, or it is within you. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, it is within you. See, the phrase kingdom of God is often interpreted meaning going to heaven, and that's part of it, but that's not all of it. The kingdom of God is here and now. Mark 12, verse 28, says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, What commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, Well, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. 
And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after nobody dared ask him any more questions. I, wanna, I want us to unpack that exchange a little bit. Because in response to the scribe's question, what's the greatest commandment of all? Jesus responds with three parts. Three parts to the one whole, the one most important commandment. And the three parts are this. The first is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The second is, love the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the third is, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus did here is he combined two very familiar teachings from the Old Testament. He combined the Shema in Leviticus 19.18. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And then Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the scribe responds to what Jesus says, and he says, you're right, teacher, you have truly said, he is one, there's no other beside him, to love him with all our heart, with all our understanding, with all our strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, I recognize, Jesus, that what you're saying, that the primary thing, recognizing who God is, loving him, and as a result, loving others, that that's more important than sacrifices, than tradition, than religion. I recognize that. It's a, it's a really a radical thing for him to say, and it's profound that he recognized it. And Jesus' response is this. You are close to the kingdom of heaven. Because he had moved from just a system of a law, just a system of sacrifices, just showing up to church and writing a check and doing the stuff to recognizing it was about the relationship. But see, there was one thing that was incomplete. There was, one, uh, there was some understanding that was partial. And so Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're still missing something. And here's what the scribe lacks, and here's what often we lack. It's the new commandment Jesus would give in John 13, verse 34. And he begins by saying, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. But that wasn't the new commandment. The new commandment was the standard by which we love one another. The new commandment in full is this, a new commandment I give to you. The new church, us, the people of God, not just about the system, not just about the religion, not just about the sacrifice, about acknowledging the love, about acknowledging who God is, loving him and loving our neighbor, and the standard by which we ought to judge our love for our neighbor is this, Jesus, John 13, 34. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Just saying, you want, you want the fullness of the kingdom of God? then love one another with the way I loved you. That's what he's saying. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love from one another. He's saying, this is the way you are now to live as the people of God, and this is the way, not the system, not the tradition. There's nothing wrong with those things. We ought to do those things out of an overflow of our heart. Those things are not substitutes. Substitutes. 
And so we do those things, but we do those things recognizing it's out of a love for God. And Jesus is saying the, the real fulfillment, the real sign that you are my disciples if you love one another the way I have loved you. And so often it's what we lack in our lives and our ministries. And you want to know why? It's because we allow situations and circumstances to dictate how we live. It's because I react and respond instead of being prayerful, instead of allowing the light and the love of Jesus to flow through me. I react and respond to situations, and then I blame the situations. Well, I said this because you said that. I did this because you did that. No. No. I'm responsible for me. And you're responsible for you. And we're not called to just love God and to just be light when it's easy or when it's convenient. We're called to do it all the time. And yet, so often, we get discouraged, we get distracted, and we disobey, and we disconnect. And, and because of what people have said to us or done to us or a church hurt us or, or whatever it is, we sit on the sidelines and we make excuses. But this morning we're going to look at perseverance and not giving up. We're going to look at doing what he's called us to do no matter what happens, at being salt and light, at being his witnesses, at being the church, at building the kingdom. And so the title of this message is just keep building. No matter what's happening around you, just keep building. No matter what's happening to you, just keep building. Because he's going to. Because he's going to build his church. And we get to be part of that. So take a moment, greet one another, and then we'll continue this morning with this word. Father, we come before you this morning. We come here and we ask for your presence, your power, and your peace. Lord, remove the distractions. We come here with disappointments and anxiety and frustration and fear and all the things. But Father, minister to us. Meet us. Do what only you can do. We thank you for your spirit and your word, for your presence, for your community. And so Father... We trust that you'll give us what we need and help us to receive it. Help us to humble ourselves, to confess and repent and to be teachable. Help us to allow the change in our lives that you desire, that we can be more effective for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in the Old Testament. Whenever Sam preaches, I always feel Old Testament inspired. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. 
reads like a prayer journal, means comforted by Jehovah, the name Nehemiah. He's among the Jews in exile, of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian empire fell to the Persians, Nehemiah found himself as the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. It was a prominent position like the governor with Ezra the priest. Israel were God's chosen people, and they disobeyed God. It's hard to believe that a special people that God favored, that God set apart, would just disobey them. I mean, how does that happen, right? You think, like, if God, like, made promises in your life and work that you'd... But anyway, crazy, but they did. They disobeyed. Not like us. We don't do that. But they, they, those people, because when I read the Bible, it's those people, right? And this is another sermon for another day, but hear this. Deuteronomy 1 begins, These are the words of Moses, spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. And then in parentheses, there's a notation. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kardash Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. May not seem like an important point, may seem like an incidental detail, but let me note that it took the Israelites 40 years to make an 11-day journey. Because of their disobedience, God caused them to wander. And I have people all the time because we, sometimes we know the destination. We know where God wants us. We just think we have a shortcut. So we think like as long as we're going, as long as I'm on the right road, I'll get there when I get there. And God's like, all right, I mean, it's going to take you 40 years. I can do it 11 days. But no, by all means, have your way. How many of us miss out on the blessing God has for us because we're having our own way. And in his, in his grace and mercy, he usually takes us back to that same spot and goes, you want to try it again? <laughs> because of their stubbornness and disobedience, because of our stubbornness and disobedience, because we forget the Lord's promises, because we just don't trust them, we miss out. And so it took a generation of wandering before they were able, able to enter the promised land. We take our will in our own hands over and over again, don't we? The main point of Nehemiah is that even in the face of opposition, of constant difficulty, that God's work will continue. And that we should trust God because of his unwavering commitment to build his church and preserve his people. Unwavering. Throughout history, he will continue to build his church and preserve his people. Not except if this happens or until this happens, but always. And so Nehemiah is written to the Jewish people who were trying to build themselves not only physically, but spiritually. They were scattered. They were just returning. They weren't yet, the, they didn't have that identity. The temple was built. They didn't have a wall. And you needed a wall to be a city. You needed a wall practically for defense. But if you, were a, if you had a wall, you were a city. And so they're still in a the process. They're kind of scattered, and they're trying to be a people of God, but they're under oppression, and there's attacks, and they're kind of not really listening. They forgot. Kind of like the church called, despite our circumstance, despite opposition, despite people against us, despite culture against us, to stand firm and to continue to build what God's trying to build, despite discouragement and disappointment to do God's work in the midst of people who are actively against them. 
So I want to read throughout different parts of Nehemiah, and I want to point out some things that I'd encourage you read through the whole book when you get a moment. But we're going to read through and, and pull out some things, and the first is right at the beginning. And in my Bible, it says, Nehemiah's grief for the exiles. And you see in chapter 1, he gets a report. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived. I asked them about Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. He said, how, how, how are my people? How are things? Things are a mess. Things are bad. The church isn't growing. In fact, all the articles I read say the church is shrinking. My kids don't follow God anymore. It's a mess. The whole thing's a mess. It's discouraging. The walls are burnt down. I don't even know if they can be rebuilt. And so it's important that we recognize that getting news like that, like the news we get, there's a couple things we can do. We can join Facebook groups and complain about it. We can tweet about it. We can talk to other people about how, how so bad things are getting. And it's true. I mean, that's true. That's what's happening. Nehemiah got a bad report because it's just been like, oh, that's so, you know, let's pray. Can I write a check? Can I, can I? Could have done that. That's not what he does, though. Verse 4 says, When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I was so distressed by the report that I didn't just ignore it. I didn't just complain about it. I didn't just tell everybody about it. It broke my heart. And I fell to my knees. And then offer up a, you know, two minute, oh Lord, touch him, and then keep going about my day. I stopped everything I was doing, and I fasted, and I prayed, and I mourned, and I wept, and I cried out to God because my heart was broken because of my love for my people. I mean, it, I don't think we don't get to that place because we're not loving, I think we're overwhelmed. I think it, it, it just sometimes it, we're overloaded and it just feels like, what, 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 I mean, what are we supposed to do? Bad news everywhere. And now we got a 24-hour news cycle. I mean, back then you had to get a report. Like it wasn't like he was, you know, it wasn't like he had the news channel in the background and that's all he saw 24-7. He was getting tweets. And no, this is, this is he's like, hey, can you guys tell me what's happening? Because I have no idea. Like, so imagine how discouraging it is for us when all you hear about is the same thing. It's overwhelming. It can be crippling. Or it cannot be. So, so here's what he did. He, he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. His heart was broken. See, church, when we wait upon the Lord, when it's about his timing, not ours, when it's about his will, not ours, things change. And before we act, we must always pray. If we're not seeking and praying for, to God, then a lot of times it's our work we're doing, not his. I've heard it said before, when we plan, and I like planning. I'm a spreadsheet guy. I got tabs linked to tabs. I'm a planner. We have strategy meetings, and they have strategy meetings about the strategy. Like, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm saying when we plan, we get the best of what we can do. And when we pray, we get the best of what he can do. And we got we to gotta recognize that. Psalm 3320, I love this. It says we wait in hope for the Lord. Not just we wait upon the Lord, but we wait in hope for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield. 
Jesus said it this way, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete? It's a, it's a spiritual principle that he's sharing there. Would you stop and think? What does it mean to be a missionary? We say all the time, the gospel's free, but it's not cheap. It's a life for a life. Jesus gave his life for you, and in return, he asked you to give your life back to him. That means you shift your allegiance. That, mean, that means you're no longer Lord and King. I'm no longer Lord and King. He is. I say for a long time, I love the Jesus Savior part. Jesus is going to save me. I need to be saved. But the Lord and King, I was like, I don't know. Can you just save me and let me be Lord still? I mean, that's the way we live. We don't say it, but that's the way we live. And he's like, okay. Yeah, let me know how that works out for you. Verse 5, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He's motivated, Nehemiah, by his love for his people. He had a heart for the lost. All those people, those people, whatever that group is to you, does your heart break for them? I mean, it's always funny to me when we criticize lost people for behaving like lost people, and we don't criticize us, saved people, for behaving like lost people. Ouch. This isn't me preaching to you, church. This is the Lord preaching to each one of us, right? You know what I'm saying? Do we have a heart for the lost? Do we avoid difficult people? We see them struggle and we move on because we're too busy, because it'll cost too much. Nobody said it was easy. Right now, this, what we're doing, this church, this new church God built, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Incredibly difficult, but it's good. It's beautiful, but it's not easy. Nothing good and beautiful is ever easy. It's not supposed to be. We're supposed to trust in him. We're supposed to rely on him. I'd rather have teachable than able any day. So would God. He doesn't need you. You get to be used. We get to do this. What a privilege. At the end of chapter 1, as a note, he says this. Listen to this prayer. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. And I love that. This isn't just like, you know, he had 10 minutes of prayer time in the morning and then he went about his day. This was all consuming to him. God, bro this broke his heart. It's all he could think about. He was a governor. He had a job to do. He could have been like, well, you know, that's sad. Can we send some money? Well, that's sad. You know, maybe can we pray? That's sad. Maybe well, I'm the governor. Maybe I'll send somebody out there. Maybe no, but God gave him a burden. And people come to me sometimes and say, Pastor Bob and Brian, I got this idea for ministry. And I'm like, okay. And then they'll share the idea. I'm like, that's good. And like, so can you guys do that? Can the church do that? I'm like, well, how about you? How about if you do it? Now, I'm not saying the church isn't here to support and encourage and build up. But I'm saying if God's placed a burden in your heart, who's the church? Me? I'm not a church. We're the church. And we all have a part to play. And we're going to see what that looks like. But I love this because it says, I'm praying before you now day and night. And then he says, on behalf of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Nehemiah praying, 
My prayer would have probably been like, Lord, I'm going to ask for your help to rebuild against all the, what those people did. I mean, they attacked us and they destroyed stuff. It's all their fault. So, Lord, I'm going to pray that you help me to do the right thing against all those people doing the wrong thing. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah recognizes his own rebellion and his own sin. And that a lot of the problems were self-inflicted. A lot of the problems were God's judgment. See, it's so easy to blame everybody else. You know, people pay for a revival. I have people say, Pastor Brian, we need revival. The country, the United States, we need revival. My wife, boy, she needs revival. My neighbor, my boss, he needs revival. You know what happens when you pay for revival? Your heart. Revival is when, when you say to God, I want to love you more than I love my sin. And I'm going to fast and pray and I'm going to weep and mourn. And I'm going to, I'm going to beg you for your grace and mercy until that's the case. That's when revival happens. It's an overflow. And Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah could have been like, Lord, <laughs> you know, I want to pray down fire on those Babylonians, right? Because, I mean, when bad stuff happens to us, we want justice. The fire of God. I'm going to pray vengeance of God. When, when, when we wrong somebody, we want mercy and grace. It's so human, aren't we? See, he repented for himself and for his people, and he prayed to the Lord for an opportunity. He's overwhelmed. We're going to see in a moment. He was afraid. But he, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, this is so overwhelming. Oh, well. That's what we do. I mean, we do that. I do that. But he prayed for an opportunity. Because it's always easy to make an excuse. I mean, you can always. You can always find a reason not to do something. But there are some people who will find a reason, find a way, no matter what, to get done what they need to get done. See, when we have a burden for the work of, of God, when we have a desire to follow him, follow him, insecurity won't stop us from getting it done because he gives us that burden. You've heard me say before, his will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. His will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. God's not going to give you a burden. He's not going to bring you to a place and then just be like, all right, you got this now? You don't need me. I mean, we do that. We're like, oh, I, I got this now. But he doesn't do that to us. Anyone who is called by God to a significant task will have feelings of inadequacy. But you can only start where you are. You can't wait until some distant day in the future. And I say this lovingly, and I've told you before, I will tell you the truth and have you be annoyed with me, then lie to you and have you love me. And so I say this, and I don't say this to be critical. I say this just as an observation, and I think sometimes we don't even recognize it, and we're well-intentioned, but I've heard single people say that they can't serve because they're in school and they're working and it's just too busy, but someday when things slow down, they're going to serve. And they meet somebody, and they're in a new relationship. And, well, you know, I'm in this new relationship. My spouse, they may come to church. But someday, I mean, we're going to get plugged in once we, you know, once we, you know, get, get that, that. It's just a hectic period of our life. Okay. And then have kids. Well, the kids are young. It's so hard to come to church with young kids. But someday when the kids get older, then we're going to, okay. 
And then the kids get older and they're teenagers, and by this time you're in your 40s or your 50s or whatever it is, and now you're a boss at work, so now you get a lot of responsibility. And now, well, you know, someday I'm going to, and the kids play sports. Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the kids' sports, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow down, and then you get older and you retire. Well, you know, we do a lot of traveling. We're not here. And, and again, I, like, I don't think, I think every time I have that conversation with somebody, in their heart, they're sincerely thinking that sometime, that someday, that in the distant future, and that's always a little further on the horizon. And a decade goes by, and two decades go by, and you look back and go, man, I wish I would have been a little more connected. You know, it's not necessarily about the serving activity I mean, about what you're doing. I remember, and I said in the first service, and I, I see uh, Kaylee here, but I remember, it must have been 25 years ago, painting Tab's house. Now, they asked me, like, we're going to paint somebody's house. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, we're going to get together, and we're going to paint. It's going to be a painting party. I'm like, just because you add the word potty to it, that doesn't make it. It's still painting. If you're going to have an oil-changing party, not interested. Like, and I was like, I don't even paint. I don't even know how to paint. Have you ever seen me draw? I don't, like, oh, it doesn't matter. You just, we'll, we'll keep you off to the side. We're going to get pizza. It'll be fine. Now, I could have I made good excuses. Well, I'm not a painter. Like, if you want to have a preaching party, maybe, like. <laughs> but I showed up, and I mean, I, to this day, I remember that. Like, all of us getting together, painting that house, and we don't paint houses, so please don't send emails <laughs> to the church. That's not where the story's going. We all got together, and we had pizza, and we hung out, and we painted our house, and it was, all, it was just great. To this day, 25 years, I don't even remember. Uh, what, I mean, I remember that. And there's been so many things. And you get to know people, and you hang out, and you serve, and you meet a practical need. And that's just one example. But you're always going to be too busy. I, I, I am a victim of this, and I tell the staff all the time, we are in control of our calendars. Now, I'm not saying we don't have busy seasons. I'm not saying, like, sometimes life happens, I get it. But if you have busy seasons a decade, you're mismanaging your life. <laughs> in all the love in the world, that's the truth. We make time for what's important to us. You can ask people what's important, and they'll say a whole bunch of things, and I think, I don't know, John Orberg maybe said, if you really want to see what's important, look at people's calendar and checkbook. Because we only have a little bit of time, we only have a little bit of resources, where does that go? And most of the time, if we're honest, if I'm honest, looks like I make time for all the stuff I like. My wife will talk about, you know, you should exercise. I'm like, honey, I do not have time to exercise today. Do you know how much stuff I have going on? She's like, well, Netflix said you watch like seven seasons of, I'm like, whoa, supposed to erase that. See, if we desire opportunity, it'll come. But it'll also never look like we think it'll look. Chapter 2, Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem. It says that he was in his presence before the king. And the king says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, I'd like to just make a little note here that sometimes my wife accuses me of having a pity party and of that being counterproductive. And point of reference, in this case, it was not counterproductive at all. In fact, this is why he got the opportunity. That might not, that might not be the interpretation there, but he was pouting. That was what was happening. He's like, oh, man. The king's like, what's up with you? Are you sick? You're not sick? What's wrong? 
Seriously, he, it, it was, he was so sad, he was so burdened that he couldn't pretend, you know? You know when things are such, it's so difficult that yeah, you can't put on a game face. Because you're heartbroken. You see people I run into, people I ran into a friend of mine the other day, and I was like, man, how you doing? And before he can answer me, I mean, just like he was a, a moment from just falling apart. He's like, I am barely hanging on. And you could see it, you could see it. There was no hiding that. I'm sure you want to be like, I'm great, I'm great. How are you doing? That's what, that's what Nehemiah feels like. And then I love this, because then it says, I was very much afraid. Now, Nehemiah could have been very much afraid before the king, and that could have been the end of the story. Like, I was discouraged because I heard the church in America is not growing, and, you know, my kids aren't where they're supposed to be, and, you know, my neighbors, and I keep praying, and I'm so discouraged, and, and I'm afraid to say anything, and, and that's it. The story ends, period. No more. And I live my whole life, and I don't do anything because I'm afraid. And it says, but, I said to the king. I was afraid, but I acted. I was wholly inadequate, but I was obedient. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? See, it's okay to to feel a certain way. It's okay to be discouraged, but it's not okay when that stops us. Because then the enemy wins. And it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. And I love that. Because I don't know about you. I mean, I'm probably the only one here, but I tend to talk first and pray second. You know what I mean? I tend to say something and then go, I shouldn't have said that. Or I definitely shouldn't have said that that way. But not Nehemiah. I said, then I prayed to the God of heaven and then I answered the king. Pray first, talk second. If you take nothing away from this sermon, take away that. Pray first, talk second. Pray first, act second. If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And so his prayers were answered, and God gave him opportunity. And you could say, well, that's a happy story. Except it wasn't easy opportunity. Because there's still an enemy who's against God's people. There's still people who are against God's people. But he talked to the king and then he gathered the people. And the text in chapter 2 verse 18 says this. He motivated the people by talking about what God has done. See, if you're, if you're talking to somebody that's struggling and they don't know God, you need to testify. They don't know what God's done. Maybe they haven't seen what God's done, but you have, and I have. And some people are like, but I'm overwhelmed, but I see this, and I see this, and I see this. You could be like, I used to see that, and I used to see that, but then I saw Jesus in that. And you know what Jesus did? He testified to the people what God had done. No, you don't understand who God is. You don't understand his power. You don't understand his promises. And then you know what their response was? Let's start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. Not, well, you know what, Nehemiah, that sounds like a good plan. Here's 50 bucks. Let us know know how that works out. Good luck. No, they're like, yeah, we want to be part of this thing. I mean, it's our our 
city. It's our temple. It's our wall. It's going to protect us. Let's start rebuilding. See, the burdens are always lighter when everyone works together, right? In chapter 3, we're going to hear about the process. I want to talk a little about it because it takes people working together, not people complaining. I want to go into the details, but let me just say this. There were some of the, of the gates of the wall that were ornate and that were beautiful and that were, were a little bit more of a, of, a, of a priority, were a little bit more of a privilege to work on those gates. I don't think anyone was like, the dung gate, can I, I'll do the dung gate. That's awesome, sign me up. No, everyone was like, I want to work on the most beautiful gate there is. I want to be part of that so I can tell everybody, oh, that gate? Yeah, I did that. I mean, that was me. And sometimes people want to serve, and they're like, and I get, like, our sweet spots. And I'm not saying don't come to me and be like, hey, you know, I have experience in this. But sometimes people are like, this is what I do. If you need somebody to do this, I do it really well. I can do it on this day at this time. Let me know. <laughs> that is not helpful to me at all. And then sometimes there are people who be in you know, people say, well, you know, I'm waiting for a place to serve. I don't really know. If you, if you want to serve, you just talk to William and Christina. Say, I want to serve, and they'll find it. They'll find a place. Sometimes it's your sweet spot, and God will do that, but it's the heart of service. You know, I, I, you know I, I'm in the church, and I see people cleaning the grease trap out. They're not people who get paid to do that. They're people whistling, cleaning out the grease trap. I don't want to clean out the grease trap. Why are they doing it? They don't have to do that. Because it's, un, it's unto the Lord. And you know what? Somebody's got to do it. And so when everybody does their part, not, well, I'll help, but I'm only going to do that. Well, I'll help, but I'm only going to do that. And everybody's, you know, like, okay, well. And so you know who does it? The 10% of people who are doing everything else. I tell a team all the time, leadership is, is this. This is leadership in a nutshell. Getting people who aren't doing anything to get involved and trying to stop the people who are doing everything from doing everything. That's all of leadership. It's true, Jerusalem had a lot of gates back then, and some were less prestigious. But here's the thing, practically speaking. It doesn't matter how prestigious or not the gate is. If the wall's built and that gate's not done, guess what? The whole wall is pointless. That's right. Because in that sense, it is all the same thing. They are all equally vital and equally important. Everybody, no matter what you do in God's kingdom for God's work, is equally important. Every part of the body of Christ is important. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. See, there's all kinds of people when it comes to God's work. There are those who will only do what they want, when they want, who will serve if it suits them and their preferences. There are those people who just do the work. They just show up. There are those people who support the work in prayer or in finances. Maybe they're older or less able. And that doesn't mean that's a substitute. I've had conversations with people who wrote checks and I didn't come to church anymore. And I've said, why, why are you doing that? This isn't, like, this isn't your church. That, because there's this religious mindset of, well, I'm doing this religious thing. And it's like, no, you give and support out of an abundance, out of a love for God. But that's not a substitute. That's not instead of. I mean, I'm definitely annoying people with this sermon this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. Ready? Guys, if, if your wife serves, you don't get credit for that. Well, my family's serving. No, your family's not serving. Your wife's serving. I just feel like I have to say that. 
And now I get, I get, again, I get busy seasons. I get work. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not talking about even intense, but I'm saying if you were like, hey, once every two months I can show up and help in the nursery where my kid is anyway, or whatever it is, do you know how much easier that would be? Instead of the same people who haven't been able to sit in service, or that's just an example. I'm not, and this isn't anything specific. I'm just saying in general. If, if everybody was, all of a sudden, if everybody's like, I want to serve, you know what it would look like? It wouldn't even be often because we'd have so many people be like, all right, well, once every three months, we only need an hour from you because we're good. So this isn't about like an overwhelming, like, all right, we need you here nine to five, four to eight. No, that's not it. It's about everybody being like, you know, my, this is my situation. This is my, you know, where I'm at right now, but I, I want to do something. We can't all do everything, but everybody can do something. See, there's all kinds of people. There are those who stand on the sidelines and let everyone else do the work. Then there are those who just criticize and complain. I mean, sometimes the stuff that people say out loud, it, it boggles my mind. I've heard people be like, well, I come to the church later when that worship team's playing because I don't like that one. I like the other one. So if they're playing, I come late. Did you just say that out loud? <laughs> Nothing? Just thinking that that's not... Or people be like, yeah, that sermon, I don't know, that didn't really speak to me. Meanwhile, the person literally on the side of them, it's exactly what they need to hear, and they're crying. But you don't know that because you're all about you. Right. And if you're if you a new Christian, if you're here, I get it. And if you're here and you're like, I, I need to be ministered to right now, I'm, that's, that's why we exist. But if you've been here year after year after year and it's still all about you, you miss something. With all love in my heart, you miss something. And here's the thing, ready? What you're missing out on is what's best for you. You want to get out of your own self? You know the best way to do that? Love on someone else. You know how many times I've been frustrated, aggravated? I don't even want to go to that. I don't even want to do that. And then I show up and start serving and loving. And I'm like, what was I upset about this morning? I don't even remember right now. Those who just criticize and complain. Those who just, and in early in leadership, you know, I'm a, every, every personality test I take, I'm like high diplomat. Like that's my, so in my mind, even as I say that, I'm convinced. I don't care how much you disagree. If I could just sit down and, and I could just, that I would get you to agree. Like that's in my head. I think there's always a resolution. We can work it out. We can work it out. But what I've learned as I get older is that if I spend 99% of my time trying to please the people who will never be pleased anyway, and who will hop from church to church and be like, this church has a problem, this church has a problem, this church, yeah, you know what it is? You, you're the problem. There you go. <laughs> and let me just say this, in, in, the, in the Bible, discipline is always restorative. It's never punitive, ever. It's always restorative. It means that in the most extreme sense, what Paul says is, if it's harmful to the individual of the church, you got to go. And when you go, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to love on you that you'd return with a softened heart. And that's it. But sometimes we've got to be like, you know what? You've got to go for your own benefit because whatever it is, is people just criticize and harden hearts. And all we see in verse 4 through, in chapters 4 through 6 in Nehemiah is people who are criticizing and they start out in their name calling. You see those guys, that wall they're building? A rat's going to walk on that. It's going to fall apart. These guys, they don't know what they're doing. 
What are you doing? Are you disobeying God? Are you rebels? Let's, let's start a room and they're rebels. Then they're like, you know what? Let's say we're going to join them and we're going to help them build and then we'll attack them and like just evil stuff, right? Because when you do God's work, that's what happens. There are people who are going to sit there and criticize. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. <laughs> you know, the, I just think of the lives of the people who say that a lot of times and it makes me laugh. Really. That's what's happening. They criticize and angry. It got to the point, it was so extreme, and we're going to read about it, where Nehemiah says, I had one row of guys, and they got swords and spears, and the other row is behind them, and they're trying to build, because it's people who are actively trying to attack them while they're building. Now, if that's an excuse to give up, you know, be like, all right, everybody, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I mean, this thing's taking longer than we thought. It's costing more than we thought. Let's just just pack it up. We're not going to do this. That would have been reasonable. Sometimes God asks us to do unreasonable things. There will always be those who actively fight against God's work. And so what do we do when that happens? Do we give up? I mean, we act surprised, like, you know, like we share Jesus at work and then our coworkers talk about us at lunch. We're like, that's, I'm never going to talk about Jesus again and making fun of me The people do it. That's it? That's all it took? Really? I mean, people made fun of Jamie and I, like, for a long time. I mean, we would get calls earlier on, and, you know, guys, that, well, we'd hear, you know, this one saying this, and it'd be like, okay, so <clears throat> when we did the things we did, which we can't even really talk about, you didn't have a problem with that? You didn't make fun of us then? That was okay to you? And now, now you can criticize? Like, amen, I'll take that. Are you kidding me? I'll be a fool for Jesus. You keep still being a fool for you. And you know what, over the years, because of consistency, you know what happens? Those guys say, the guys that are still alive, call us and say, you know, brother, could you help me out? Yeah. Hey, can you sit with me, man? I'm really struggling. They're not laughing anymore. And they're not even seeing, it's not O'Brien and Jamie, it's something's different about those guys. You, something's different about each of us. They see Jesus us. Jesus tells us in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. I love that. Because I keep thinking, when I was doing all the stupid stuff I was doing, you guys loved me. I was a moron. Now you don't love me? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're a part of that, everybody loves you. When you stand for God, suddenly now it's not you they're opposed to, it's God. It's a spiritual battle. And Jesus said this, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. So every time somebody talks bad about you, every time you read news that's against Christianity, every time culture seems to be turning against you, I want you to stop and recognize the world hates me because Jesus has chosen me out of the world. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. And if they obey my teaching, they will obey yours as well. See, one of the amazing things is that the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Unheard of, miraculous. On time, under budget. Why? Because despite opposition, because despite 
active, you know, people name-calling and scheming and conniving and talking bad, that people recognized this thing was bigger than them. And they worked together. Here's something for us to consider. Study after study. Mega churches, small churches shows 90% of the people, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. I think we're better. I think we got 20, 30% of the people. I think we blow that statistic out of the water, but still... What about the other 70%? Think of the evangelistic outreach, the discipleship opportunities, all the other gospel work. We had an, uh, an outreach Saturday at Campbell School. Gave away 125 backpacks, six bicycles. We had all kinds of people in the community come out. The principal, the teachers were there. It was a beautiful event, beautiful day. Tons of people. First time we did it. Pastor Willie, Christina did an incredible job. Actually, did an incredible job. It was amazing. And we're going to keep doing that. You know what they are motivated by? The love for the kids. They could have sat, well, it's going to be hard. Maybe the school doesn't want to let us. And, you know, they could have made excuses, but they didn't. They want to be part of what God's doing in the city. What would it look like if 100% of the people in the work, if the people in the church worked for the cause of Christ? So you ask yourself this, am I a burden to the work God's trying to do around me, or am I making the burden lighter? If they did a study, would I be in the 20 or 30% doing the work, or I would be in the 70%? And again, please understand me. If you, you just came, you're in, a, you're in a struggle, you're barely hanging on, your life, we're here to minister to you. But get involved for your own benefit and for the benefit of all of us. Get involved. Work goes faster when everyone works together. See, it's going to happen. I mean, we don't need the work in the sense that we're not going to not do, like, it's going to happen. We're going to do it. Somebody's going to do it. But you get to. You could, you could have an opportunity to. There was active opposition from all over the place. And we see at chapter 4, verse 16, it says, From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. And the other thing is, when you see people doing work for God, when you see people, encourage them. You know, I, I, I got a call uh, the other day, and I meet, I meet with pastors here in prayer time, and I meet with pastors whenever a pastor moves to the area I meet, and, uh, and, I, and I talk to them and try to encourage them. And, and you know, what's happening here is special. This is not ordinary. This is extraordinary, what God's doing in this place. And I talk to pastors, and they're like, you know, the church is falling apart, and the people, it's the eighth, eighth pastor in the church, and everything's divided, and people are fighting over COVID, and they're fighting over this, and they're fighting over that. And, and I, they're like, how's things at your church? And I'm, like, embarrassed to answer. I'm like, yeah, we're good. I don't know. I mean, you know why? It's the Spirit of God. Because at the heart of it, we love God, and we love people. We're not perfect. This isn't easy. But it's amazing what God's doing. I, I, when I was on vacation, I got a, a call, and, uh, and I was, you know, it's so hard for me to not answer every call. I'm like, I got to let it go to voicemail. I can't, you know. And I let it go to voicemail, and then I, I listened to it, and it was somebody just saying, I'm just calling to let you know I'm so amazed by what God's doing, and I just want to share with you, and I'm so thankful. And they're crying on the phone in the voicemail, and I'm crying trying to drive, and I'm like, <laughs> I had a call just two or three days ago. 
Guys like, Pastor Brian, can we set up a time to meet? I just want to thank you and the team. I just want to share with you what God's doing in my heart. I'm like, is there a camera? Is this like a joke? Is this? People don't call you to say, hey, I want, I want to share some good news. People are like, Pastor Brian, I got to tell you about what you're doing wrong. Or, right? <laughs> See, the battle's spiritual. And the enemy wants us divided and distracted and ineffective. And he doesn't care if you're not plugged into your group or you're not coming to church because you're drunk in a bar room or because you, uh, you know, out playing sports. It doesn't matter as long as you're not doing, as long as he's got you away from the spiritual vitality that God wants for you. I read once, if you put people down, make sure you put them down on your prayer list. If you spend more time in life criticizing people than loving them, you're simply doing life wrong. So I, I, this is like my confession time too. I make. So I'm away in Vermont. I'm like in the place I love the most with the people I love the most. And I'm like negative. I'm finding myself a little critical, complaining. I mean, there's like 12 of us in one space, so that makes it a little, little tough, <laughs> plus my two dogs. And I'm also on this carb-free diet, so I want to blame a lot of it on the carbs, because, man, and then they're like, let's get pizza. Anybody want Sundays? I'm like, guys, I know I'm the only one on a diet, but can you, no? So I'm, I'm like, getting negative to the point my wife's like, honey, come here. I'm like, what? She's like, we need to talk. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, can we talk now? No, we need to talk privately. She's like, you're being so negative. Do you see that? And I was like, no. What are you talking about? I'm not negative. <laughs> She's like, you kind of are. I'm not really sure why, because we're on vacation in Vermont with your family. And I'm, I, I really had to pray and be like, whoa, what is, like, why, what is that? Like, I'm, like, why am I, you know what I mean? I'm trying to be refreshed, and it's the flesh. I was in the flesh. I was in the spirit. You think that doesn't happen to me? It happens to me. Trust me. Ask the people around me. But I had to stop and be like, you know, like, I don't know why. I don't know why I just get that, you know. You know, in in Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis, was probably his most profound book theologically, really. And he talks about the strategy enemy. And you know what it is? It's to keep you looking at your neighbor. It's to keep you from looking at your own heart. You're like, oh, that sermon. I know my wife needs to hear that sermon. <laughs> the enemy just wants us to look at the, the other person in the church and this and that and this, and it's like, no, no, no. Nehemiah had it right. Lord, forgive me for my sin. I repent. In fact, after they rebuilt the walls, there was a spiritual rebuilding See, the, the, the law, the book of Moses had lost its place and it had a, a priority again because the word of God has to be priority for spiritual rebuilding to take place. And it begins, not when you leave and say, I feel bad, Pastor Brian preached a sermon and I'm not doing it. No, but you say, you know what? I repent, I confess, I need, to, I need to maybe step up a little bit. Lord, help me. Help me play my part because I'm missing out if I don't. The world will repeatedly and relentlessly tell us what we are doing is pointless and that our efforts are wasted. And discouragement is very real for Christ followers, particularly culturally for us now where it seems like everything's against us. 
but everything will always be against you when you live for Jesus. And that's okay. He knows that. He expected it. He tells us. But he also reminds us to take heart, to be encouraged that he's overcome this world and that we're not alone. Do we weep for our city? Do we fast and pray for opportunities? Are we actively involved in gospel work or are we on the sidelines complaining and criticizing and waiting for the perfect church or the perfect opportunity? Do we ask the Lord for opportunity for restoration and reconciliation? Do we believe that God can rebuild any walls in our life? that he can renew and restore families, that he can revive cities, that he can bring to life those who are dead in sin. No matter what the obstacles, what can we do together? See, someday, if everything we do is for us, God's not gonna say, great job building your own kingdom. Good job storing up for yourself treasures for you and your children. He's going to say, man, you really missed out. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, if you want to preserve your life, if you want to live a life worth living, you got to be willing to give it up for my sake. And if you seek to preserve it, in other words, if, if your whole life is all about you, you will have lived and gotten to the end and realized you've never lived at all. You've missed what it means to be alive. See, one day we have to give an account to how we used words and resources and relationships and opportunities that God entrusted us with. Did we make excuses or did we make a way? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I know that many of us know that for years and years throughout the world, New Bedford is known as the city of light all the whale oil we supplied and we were the city of light everyone knew that and you see in the logo and we've talked about what it would be if we could be known as the city of light again for the gospel presence for Jesus you know great awakenings happen in New England it could start here God's doing amazing things some of you heard this poem before by Mother Teresa and I want to close with it It says, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Not us, but I mean other people. (laughs) Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you succeed, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you live honestly, people may cheat you. Live honestly anyway. What you spend years building, somebody could destroy overnight, but build anyway. If you find yourself serenity and happiness, people will be jealous. Live happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow, but do good anyway. Give the world the best you have And though it may never be enough, give the world the best anyway. 
Because in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway.